there's a green light bulb that lives in our Boston office. And the light bulb only turns on when 100% of our users have achieved 100% of their commitments over the last six months. That light bulb has never turned on. Um, I'd like that light bulb to turn on and stay on by the time I die and never turn off. So kind of that's the mission behind the company and that's kind of the mission and the meaning behind my life. Hey, that's Manish Sethi of Pavlot. And how's that for being crystal clear on your vision and what you're here to do? And there's some more big vision sharing in this episode. When you put it all together, this one is an absolute do not miss. I'm Alicia Ward and this is Get Working Right. Digging into what it really takes for work to be right. For you, for me, for all of us. Uncovering what it actually takes to get working right. I'm really excited to have Manish Sethi, founder of Pavlock, on the show today. Uh, Pavlock makes hardware, software and services that help people change their habits for good. Uh, Manish, you've had really quite an off-the-beaten-track career Mm -hmm. at thesystem.com, becoming a DJ in 90 days, you're a published author. It's just the tip of the iceberg. You've done like a ton of different things and it's ultimately led you to found Pavlock. And in Pavlock, that kind of theme of variety and change, I don't know, it seems to have gone, at least from the outside looking in. Uh, what is it about Pavlock, um, you know, your work at Pavlock, that's been able to hold your attention all these years? Uh, I think I'm solving a problem that's much bigger than myself. So, you know, I think that a lot of people find meaning through work that they do and that a lot of times they find the work that they do that's the most meaningful is solving a problem that they have for themselves. I think a lot of entrepreneurs, the most successful entrepreneurs are really just trying to solve a problem. And uh, the one that has always affected my life ever since I was young was my inability to follow through with things I would commit to. Uh, Ever since growing up, I would always have these ideas about stuff I could do and things I wanted to do and projects I wanted to do and Then when it came down to actually doing the work, I would rarely do them. And I had this kind of self-destructive nature or kind of like imposter syndrome sometimes where I would feel like I would talk about all these cool ideas, but I could rarely uh, finish them. And this drove me to be really interested in self-improvement, but also in kind of the science behind habit change and the science of productivity. Um, And I think that I started to get attracted to authors and writings around productivity and distraction. And all of it kind of culminated in, in the idea of Pavlock, which is designed to be sort of a defender against distraction. It's, it's a product, it's coaching, it's software that helps people set commitments and stick through with them. And we've kind of aligned that mission around this idea of a green light bulb. There's a green light bulb that lives in our Boston office And the light bulb only turns on when 100% of our users have achieved 100% of their commitments over the last six months. That light bulb has never turned on. Um, I'd like that light bulb to turn on and stay on by the time I die and never turn off. So kind of that's the mission behind the company. And that's kind of the mission and the meaning behind my life. Oh, wow. Okay. That is, that's fantastic. Um, uh, You know, the people that I generally interview on this show will say, they're doing their right work. They are doing work that they feel is a calling, a mission, that kind of thing. Um, so would you say that's true for you of Pavlok? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's the first thing I've ever done where it's pretty clear I'm not doing anything else for the rest of my life. Um, ever since I started businesses and stuff, it was always like I'm always like setting up an out, always yeah. like creating a way for this is going well, but like there's something else I might do. Um, but once I figured out Pavlock, it's like there's no way that the, this is what I do for the rest of my life. So for sure, it's it's my calling. Okay, cool. So you are yeah, you are all in on this. Um, yeah, rather than looking for the the next thing. Yeah, there's something also magic when you when you heavily commit to something for the rest of your life because it makes it so that you can't you can't be killed. Um, <laughs> like my company, we've gone through situations where we've run very low on cash. Um, we've come through situations where my debt is far in advance of my cash flow. Um, last year, we completely ran out of money, and there was a period of a week where there was no new transfers coming into my bank account, and I was stuck in a foreign country with no access to any cash and no credit cards whatsoever. And I had to steal bread from a supermarket in order to eat. And the thing is like, you can put me in these situations that would cause other people to fold or quit their company. But when you know that you're doing one thing for the rest of your life, sometimes you got to steal bread from a supermarket. It doesn't matter. The company's still going to live because that's what, what I'm doing. Um, there's no way for any competitor to come and make my company die because there is no way to kill the company without killing me. And I think that a lot of people who don't fully commit to the idea that they're doing, um, they they don't just leave themselves an they don't just leave themselves an out, but that out becomes like the obvious like future because when things when push comes to shove, when stuff gets hard, they fold the company and do something else. Um, so I think that that's one important thing that a lot of people give up on. But it's also important that you don't commit to something that you don't really care about. So, absolutely awesome. That is that is just awesome. And just just to uh, rewind a little bit there, because you said something interesting about having to steal bread from a supermarket. Did that yeah. really happen? Yeah, it happened last year in Budapest. Not my be- not my finest hour. <laughs> I wrote a post about this um, on Facebook a couple of days ago that. Um, so I run a hardware company and hardware has a different kind of dynamics than other companies because you have physical costs and shipping and supply chain and such. And so I was writing about how um, in 2017, our company had a net loss of $700,000. In 2018, we totally ran out of capital and uh, I had to steal bread. And in 2019, right now, we're on pace to do six hundred to $700,000 in profit. And things can change very rapidly. And so, like, I think that a lot of people would give up when they were running, you know, when they've lost $700,000 one year and ran out of cash the next year. A lot of people who aren't fully committed will give up. But it's usually that dip. It's that moment where things get really hard, Mm. which is when things start to shift. They make you make the hard choices, the hard choices that kind of make all the difference. So that's my story, at least yeah well and 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 what and what a story um and did you feel like you knew that a dip would be coming at some point were you were you ready for having to go through a tough time to make this happen wasn't my first Uh, (laughs) yeah (laughs) i'm pretty used to them um especially with hardware hardware is really difficult to describe because people don't understand that there's very strange dynamics at play when you have uh, most people, I mean, I'm assuming most of your listeners are thinking about doing like info product business or thinking about doing a coaching business or thinking about doing something that's online. Um, is that true? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. So you, you won't have to really 
think about this too much. The only hard cost you have are employees typically. Um, but there's some strange dynamics that happen when you have physical products. So I have a friend of mine who he created this product that um, he got into Walmart, which is a, I'm sure you've heard of Walmart, yeah. big store in America. And uh, it, was, it was a smart product. Um, product took off. It sold so well that my, comp- my friend's company went bankrupt in six months. Sounds very weird. Yeah. But what happens is that with, hard- with hardware costs, uh, you have to deal with something called the cash conversion cycle, which is when you pay is more important than how much you pay. So he pays his suppliers on day zero. Like he wants to buy new hardware inventory. He mm-hmm. wires money to China and they ship it to him, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but Walmart doesn't pay him until 90 days later. Mm. And so what happens is the faster his product sold, the faster he went into debt. Mm. And at some point he went into, he sold so many products that he went into such deep debt that his credit score dropped that he couldn't get any loans, that no investment, nothing else. And his company had to go bankrupt. Mm. And so... That's sort of that's sort of backwards, but it's very fundamentally true that um, with hardware you have these different dynamics in play. For me, I, uh, I was lucky to understand. I've always grown up kind of weird in the sense that, like, um, I've always been like very against owning stuff. I've been kind of into like stoicism ever since I was young. Mm-hmm. Um, I always do experience. There's a quote I read uh, when I was younger by Seneca where he said. Um, live two weeks of your year facing the deepest fear you can ever have. And then you'll realize that that fear is nothing to be afraid of at all. And I remember taking that to heart when I was a lot younger and I would try to do things that were very scary to me. Mm-hmm. And among, among them was, um, I spent 28 days living in the wilderness with a group of people with no backpack, no sleeping bag, no tent, just kind of trying to survive. Um, like a wilderness survival sort of thing. Wow. And, and I honestly, I think probably without a doubt, that was like the best time of my life. Like those 28 days living in the wilderness were kind of like the best, like ever. And so like, when you think about that, that if the best time of my life was when I had the least stuff living in the wild with nothing, yeah, realize that there is no fear, right? I can't yeah. lose. Cause like my worst case is what? I got to go camp. <laughs> it's not that yeah, bad. Go have the best time of your life again. Yeah. Oh no. I got to go camping again, my friends. So like by, by going through those suffering periods, I realized that there's no, there's no potential fear of loss. There's nothing I can lose. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like for long, the longest time, I follow this kind of digital nomad lifestyle where I live in third world countries often and I'll travel with just one carry-on bag and I only own like four or five shirts. And uh, I mean, I only own what you can fit in one carry-on bag. And so to me, like owning stuff like is kind of a burden. Just yeah. kind of seems like it's a lot of work. And so... You know, when you come down, when it comes down to it, like my company is me, my employees, and like that's it. And so, like the burden is very is very low. And like again, I can, like the company will survive as long as I survive because there's nothing else I'm kind of taking from it. Yeah. So it, I don't I don't have any other needs outside of anything. So like from that perspective, it's kind of like um, that, that. It just makes sense that like being able to have that lifestyle of being able to kind of understand that there is nothing to lose. There's no fear allowed me to make the company extremely lean and able to survive through, um, you know, black swans or negative events. Mm. Okay. Yes. That's great. So in a way you, you, the company reflects your values in that, you know, you try to live lean, your company's lean. Absolutely. Yeah. I know the company is a reflection of my brain. Yeah. Yeah. 
you know, you, you you glossed over something there, you know, this whole, yeah, I spent 28 days in the wilderness, nothing, just my, uh, the best time of my life. And then <laughs> you carried on with the rest of your story. Um, I know that you shared a lot of this stuff online, uh, but I would really love to hear you just tell me a little bit more about what 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 made that the best time of your life. It's, it's not a, <laughs> it's not a, um, it's a big statement, basically. Tell, yeah. me, tell me more about it. Yeah. Um, well, so I did a wilderness survival school, so it wasn't like I was alone, just kind of d- uh, dumped in the wild. I signed up for a class. The, the class teaches you kind of how to survive, and then you, you go off into the wilderness. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a lot of different sections of it, like a lot of hiking, a lot of uh, living off the land, a lot of um, stuff like that. But one of the best sections was this solo period. Uh, and this is kind of directly re- relevant to the company, too. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a solo period where we were each put in our own cave for five days and we had to basically stay in the cave and just that's it don't do it do whatever you want but don't talk to anybody else you can't and um, in those five days all I had with me was that book with Seneca by Seneca and I had a blank journal mm-hmm. and before I went to the wilderness it was actually right when I was starting or right before I started my blog hack the system you mentioned um, I had been talking about blogging for years mm-hmm. I've been talking about how I was gonna write all these articles and stuff <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, but I never did. And I just thought it was my ADHD. I thought it was that I couldn't focus. I thought that it was a, it was a self, it was a me problem. Mm-hmm. And, um, anyway, when I was sat in the wilderness, well, guess what? I had nothing to do. I had no distractions and I had a piece of paper and a pen mm. for the next five days. I wrote more words in those five days than I'd written probably in the last five years. Wow. And I realized that it wasn't a me problem. It's that the world was changing that the world was afflicted with distractions that are out to get us at every single moment. Mm -hmm. And by putting myself in in an environment where I couldn't be distracted Mm -hmm. by, by an acting environment or enacting a tool that could protect me against the distractions, I was able to find out who I really was, which was actually a pretty good writer. (laughs) And um, that made me realize that it wasn't a me problem, that there was an environmental issue and that by shifting environments, you could massively shift the kind of person I was. So I had this big, er, a big surge of, of positive sensations through um, productivity, through creation. Uh, but also, it really kind of engendered this idea that, that, that the world is at fault, that human beings are rarely the problem. And when human beings have a commitment or have an idea of what they want to do, typically we're putting ourselves in the same situation that doesn't help us achieve those goals. And maybe that I could create a tool that would help people create a new environment within the in a modern environment that we live in. You know, it's like, it's like when um, people say, like, why are you eating, like, uh, you should, like, people who are fat, it's their fault. People who overeat, it's their fault. They just shouldn't eat the, they shouldn't eat the cookies. Mm-hmm. But it's like a, 150 years ago, there were no cookies. There were mm-hmm. no meat signs. There were no drive-thrus. Um, when you're living in the middle, middle of the wilderness, you cannot eat a cookie. It just cannot happen. Yeah. And so, by so I so I think that that was really um, a big standing point in the sense that it created my blog and helped me launch my platform, but also in the sense that it helped me understand that that um, I had to help other people realize what I had realized. Mm. Yeah, now f- f- fascinating, really, really fascinating stuff. Um, and yeah, no, I, I really, really love that. Um. You know, Manesh, whenever I've uh, listened to your interviews, um, I'm always struck by what a kind of 
self-aware guy you are you know um I love your intention intentionality uh, and I think that's super important um and it may in fact be I think the key thing in in doing work that's that's right for you um living a life that's right for you right um how tell me more about how you've grown your self-awareness uh that's a good question um I think that there are things you can do intentionally to grow self-awareness and I think it becomes kind of self um, propelling at some point. Um, I think that most people live their lives in a very consistent state. Uh, I think most people live their lives in the same environment um, all the time, their entire lives growing up. And I think that that creates sort of a consciousness that uh, it's kind of hard to, to describe what I'm trying to describe right now because there's a lot of layers to it. Um, mm -hmm. How do I say this? Um, okay, so I'll give you an example. Um, there's a, a theory that um, that consciousness as an idea of human beings knowing that they that there's an I uh, did not evolve properly or did not evolve at all until the mirror was invented. That before the mirror was invented, that they believed that human beings didn't realize that there was a differentiation between themselves and other people in the world. And by the creation of the mirror, when they looked into the mirror, they suddenly started to notice that there was a separate person between themselves and other people at all times. So if you take that as like an idea or a framework, you can see that a creation of a new environmental aspect created a new level of consciousness between individuals um, that was different than before. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I think that a lot of people don't realize how much environment affects who they are. Mm -hmm. um, I noticed that when I was in Berlin, I became a DJ because that's a DJing city. When mm -hmm. I was in uh, I was doing NGO work because that's an NGO place for people like me, a volunteer organization place. Um, I noticed that when I moved to, to every new place that I would become the city that I was in and that my personality would reflect that. Mm. Um, but what I also noticed is that as you start traveling and doing a lot of, the, a, a lot of mo movement between different places, you start to notice that there's an essence of you that goes from place to place, but that essence is kind of tainted by every place that you're in. Mm. And most people never step outside of that one environment that they grew up in and lived in their entire lives. Mm -hmm. So they can't actually see who they really are. Mm -hmm. They kind of only see this one snapshot in a potential infinite quantum state that they never get to experience. So my point here is that one easy quick step from to, to, to help you self-discover, I always told people this throughout my 20s, is just go travel alone for at least six months to a year. Mm. You learn a ton about yourself when you're dealing with the world on your own, when you don't have other uh, people that you're, you know, if you're always traveling with the same person, then you kind of, you, your two consciousnesses are melded. You're, you don't get a self-discovery in the same way as when you travel alone, for example. Mm. Um, so that's one layer. Uh, the third the, the third layer that I think is really um, useful is meditation. I think that um, most people are constantly living in a loop of thoughts that they rarely are able to exit out of. Mm -hmm. And I started meditating, I don't know, five, six years ago, six, seven years ago, maybe. I guess longer than that, but around. <laughs> and um, I think meditation helps you train yourself to shut off those thoughts for a while and start to experience the present rather than thinking about the past. Or thinking about the future, kind of the running train of thought in your mind, you start to realize, you know, when you're talking to yourself in your brain and you're responding to yourself in your brain, like mm -hmm. who's talking to who, mm -hmm. right? 
yeah. who's the person talking there? Yeah. And the, the, tr the truth is that like most anxiety is just people having running thought loops about the future. Yeah. And most depression is people having running thought loops about the past. Mm. And if you can tame that brain to stop thinking about the future and stop thinking about the past, especially on demand, you start to realize that number one, um, like the present is really all that we really have. Mm -hmm. And number two, that's kind of weird. There really is no self. Mm -hmm. uh, there is no you. So like the discovery of uh, self kind of ends up in you discovering that there really is no you. There's just a mishmash of all these kind of different personality traits that are all affected by environmental situations. Um, so what I'm trying to get at, and I think your question was, was how did I go through self-discovery process or how did I become intentional? Um, I told you a little bit about how I got to here, but mm -hmm. my major discovery is that you have personality traits, you have uh, genetic traits, and you have environments. And if you realize that there are some of those that work better for you, the secret to success is not being better. It's not developing more willpower. The mm. secret to success is recreating the environments that work so that you don't have to use willpower. Mm. I, I love that. And, and that, of course, leads into Pavlok. Mm -hmm, for sure. I, I don't know how much truth there is in this, but I've heard in the past that you felt like you were kind of uh, living in your brother Ramit's shadow. Um, and also that your mother was kind of hard to impress. Um, if, if that's all true, if that rings true, um, how much of that experience, uh, that background, do you think made you destined to do th the stuff that you've done that's out of the ordinary and obviously go on to, um, to found Pavlok? Um, yeah, I think that there is a lot to be said about those two things. Um, I mean, for sure, living in, uh, I mean, my brother was a very successful blogger. He had a very successful online industry, and he was very influential and inspirational for me growing up. And um, so I think that, like, a lot of the stuff I did was, you know, like, I read the same books that he was reading in high school, and I started to go, I went to the same university as he did, and I studied the same things with the same professors that he did. Mm -hmm. um, and I started a blog, and I wouldn't have without him. Um, I think that a lot of, I would say that like there was a little bit of a push from, you know, being the, from him being the successful big brother that made me want to stand out in my own light. That's for sure. Mm. Uh, I also think there was a lot of support from him. And so I'm not sure I would be in the same, you know, place as I am without that, you know, successful brother who helped me get here. Um, and in the same, in the same wavelength, it's like everybody in my family has contributed to being who I am. Mm. Um, so I think that there are just kind of another, another layer of that environmental factor that, uh, contributed to being who I am. Yeah. Okay, cool. That makes, makes complete sense. You know, um, I do need to touch on this as well, because it's another thing that when I was doing my research for us to talk today, um, an interesting thing that came up was that you used to have giant imposter syndrome i think those were your exact words that you used to see yourself as broken yeah for sure yeah so could you just tell me a little bit more about how you came to change that view of yourself yeah um yeah the imposter syndrome i had imposter syndrome in this case is kind of that idea that you're an imposter and all your successes are fake and that someday the world is going to find you out and my biggest imposter syndrome came from um the 
fact that I was unable to get stuff done, my only self-reported metric of success was if I said I would do something and then I was able to do it. Like if I was diligent and not procrastinating. And um, that almost never happened. What would always happen is I would get to the deadline right before something was due. I would just do a really crappy job, in my opinion, at the last minute. And somehow I would get a pretty good grade. Mm-hmm. Um, but what was, really, what was really infuriating was that I would get these accolades or I'd get rewarded or I'd get a, like a great grade. And people would think I was so smart. And um, so the imposter syndrome built from that, thing, that fact that I couldn't – like I was rewarded based on the end result. But my own intrinsic metric of success was uh, the process. Mm. And so – my process didn't match up with what my idealized process was. Mm-hmm. So as I got to college, this got, I mean, it was more and more of the same. It was like, I would, I would see these, I went to Stanford university. It was a very good university. And I would see these kids go and sit in the library every day for, you know, two hours a day writing their papers. And I wouldn't go until the day before the paper was due and I would stay up 12 hours and write it and I would get the same grade as them. Mm. And, um, and so this happened until I think the day I got over it was, it was around the same time I started getting very deep into personality traits or personality type. Um, there's a book I read called The Art of Speed Reading People, mm-hmm. which was talking about personality typing, kind of Myers-Briggs, um, the big five, all these things. And uh, there's this one personality trait called conscientiousness, which is the act of getting stuff done. Mm. And conscientiousness is the act of, like, if you say you're going to do something, you do it, you're diligent, you keep your house clean, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and it's highly correlated with a lot of positive things. People mm. who are high in conscientiousness tend to live longer. They tend to um, not get divorced. They tend to not do drugs. They tend to not get sick as much, but it's inversely correlated with one thing. And that is creativity. Mm. People who are good at finishing stuff are not, no, not very good at knowing what stuff should be done. Mm. And this specifically came down to one day I was on a train. Um, I was in Boston. I was in New York coming to Boston and I was trying to raise money for Pavlock. And um, a friend of mine, he offered to invest $10,000 in my company. And he said, hey, man, uh, can you just send me over a quick one-pager? Like, shoot me over a document tonight, quick description of the company and what you're going to use the money for. And um, assuming everything looks right, I'll send over $10,000. Mm. And I said, okay, cool. I got on the train, and four hours later, I hadn't even opened up Microsoft Word. <laughs> I was like, what the hell? So I'm like, I'm not going to go to sleep until I finish this document, a one-pager. And uh, I stayed up for another 12 hours, and it's like 9 a.m. now, and I've written like 100 words. Mm. And I'm stressed out of my mind, and I'm like, holy crap. Like, if I can't get – if I can't write a one-page about gar- like why I should have guaranteed money wired to me, like, <laughs> how the hell can I ever run a successful company? Mm. And in my last ditch effort, I pulled out my iPhone and I made a quick 30 second recording of what I wanted to say. And I sent it over to my new intern who had just started working for me. And less than 45 minutes later, he sent me over a final draft. Mm. And it clicked at that moment that some people are designed to fill out spreadsheets. Mm. Other people are designed to know what spreadsheets should be filled out. Mm. And those two people are never, ever the same. Mm. And so that that understanding that it's not that it's that I was measuring myself against the metrics of people with high conscientiousness, mm-hmm. the way that the world kind of measures quality, the kind of way that the world measures moral good is yeah. do you do stuff diligently 
and conscientiously, not do you have great grand ideas that should be done. Mm. Um, and so when I realized that the metrics that the world was using was uh, just didn't jive with the metrics that were fundamental to my personality, mm -hmm. that was kind of the destruction of the imposter syndrome for me. It was the realization that I have strengths that no person with high conscientiousness can ever even dream to deliver. Mm. Yeah, amazing, amazing. So it, it, again, another sort of a uh, breaking down of this difference between what the what the world values and what you yourself value. Uh, I love it. Just switch intact one more time, because I I caught your TEDx talk on money. Yeah. Um, and that's not actually something that I've heard you talk about much on other podcasts. Um, these free stories. Um, and it really piqued my interest. Uh, for people who haven't caught that talk, how would you sum your talk up? Yeah, I mean, the big summary, and that's kind of, I guess you do know then the larger vision of what I'm trying to do um, is much broader than anything else that I really talk about very often. Yeah. Um, the ultimate goal of Pavlock is a redistribution of resources to help people who are, it's kind of to, to shift the system around uh, the world that we live in to where we should be. Um, it's kind of a big social order thing. I think that we have a big issue right now in the sense that um, the way that we define money is a concept where you get paid because of what somebody else wants you to do. You get paid because somebody wants you to do something else for them. And that makes a lot of sense when you have goats and I have wheat and we need to trade. That mm. makes a lot of sense. But it doesn't make so much sense in a modern world where the, the, more, the, the poorer you are, the fatter you are, where mm. the incentives have all become misaligned these days where the things that are the least healthy for you are the things that are the cheapest because that's how industrialization, that's uh, how capitalism has grown over the last 300 to 500 years. Um, and I think that the entire system is, very, is basically uh, broken from the incentive structure. I think that when you look at systems, systems off, uh, like what, what's the, the common, I forget what, the, what, the, what the, the, I forget what the theorem is or the theory, but um, when you start to use a metric that no longer measures but becomes the target of a system, mm -hmm. metric no longer is a good metric. Mm -hmm. So like if your goal is uh, – if you have like a sales organization and your goal is number of, sale, number of sales calls booked, mm. um, that's a good metric to measure. But as soon as you make that the target for bonuses and stuff like that, then suddenly people will start gaming the system in order mm -hmm. to win that metric, but they're no longer quality. Yeah. Um, and so in the same way, I think that money used to be a means of exchange, but it has recently become the metric in and of itself. Mm. Replaced our desire to believe in that in moral good, our religious belief of what God says is good. We've replaced that with a moral belief in money. That we do, if, if you do something that nets you money, you have done a moral good in almost every sense. Mm. And that's caused massive problems with our incentive structure, where now the poorest people are the ones who are dying of heart disease. Gosh, you can't win with these sounds. <laughs> so basically what I was trying to get at is when we started Pavlock, all right, if people here are listening still and uh, want to know what it is, it's a wearable device that helps you change habits. It's at its core a smart dog shot collar for humans. It's a wearable device that connects to your phone. It sits on your wrist. It vibrates when you do positive behaviors. It gives you a beep when it's warning you. And it gives you an electric zap when you do bad behaviors. It can be programmed in for a variety of habits. But at its core, it's just a sensory stimulus device that rewards you for good habits and gives you an electric zap for bad habits. Um, for the longest time, we were kind of a core focus around breaking bad habits. Breaking bad habits, the most effective way to do so is through something that's called aversion therapy. 
It's a classical conditioning Pavlovian mechanism where you essentially get zapped while you do a habit for five days in a row. Um, you get, you, you, uh, smoke a cigarette for five minutes while you get zapped. You're going to want to put the cigarette down, but you keep doing the action. And what happens is your brain creates this Pavlovian association between the bad habit and the electric zap creating a negative association and you stop liking the habit. It's kind of like when, uh, a girl, when someone in college gets really, really drunk on tequila and then gets really sick and no longer likes the flavor of tequila and gets ill from the smell of it, Mm -hmm. the same concept. And it's really effective at breaking bad habits in a matter of days. Works for things like nail biting, hair picking, negative thoughts, um, unhealthy eating, uh, drug addictions, um, even some uh, some anxiety thoughts. Um, anyway, that's a whole different concept. Anyway, breaking bad habits was actually pretty easy. You just do the behavior for five days while you get zapped. But we mm. learned very early that forming good habits doesn't quite work the same way. Mm. Um, zap can help you get started on doing a habit. It might motivate you to start, but you need a positive reinforcer in order to make the habit stick. Mm-hmm. And to me, the clarity was the most positive reinforcer that there is, is money. Money has become a good in our modern society. And so what I realized is that through, and this, this started, I think, in 2014 when I started to figure out how this would look, um, that the, the clarity, the, the, the obvious future of, of what money would be is through some form of, of cryptocurrency of some variety. Uh, and so what we started doing is to build a monetary-based currency where people would get rewarded for doing positive habits. So imagine if you actually got paid to go to the gym. Mm-hmm. Imagine if you actually got paid to exercise. Imagine the incentive structure was no longer that you get paid by doing what other people tell you to do, mm-hmm. but instead you get paid by doing the actions that you committed yourself to do. Mm-hmm. So you no longer get paid because someone tells you to go do work in their backyard or make a website for them. You instead get paid because you said, tomorrow I'm going to go to the gym, and then you actually showed up to the gym. You got rewarded with a monetary uh, payment. That's kind of the world that I believe we can build. And so with Pavlok, Pavlok is a means to that end. It's kind of the mechanism for um, earning and spending uh, as well as proof. So the device itself tracks and knows kind of the behaviors you're doing. It knows your commitments. When you achieve the goals, it mines the coin. And it allows you to spend the coin. So the goal being that, let's say you walk 10,000 steps, then you walk up to any payment terminal in the entire country and put your wrist up to that payment terminal. And now you can buy it, buy lunch for yourself. Mm-hmm. That's the mission that we have to make it so anybody in any country is able to do healthy habits and get paid an actual day's weight, actual uh, average annual salary just for doing healthy habits. Mind blowing, really. Yeah, if it works. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I mean... Yeah, your your mission is 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 really fantastic, um, and I can see now why you didn't necessarily want Mister Wonderful on board because you didn't feel that he was a good fit for Pavlov and what you were trying to achieve more widely, right? Absolutely. Um, do you know what? Um, you you've completely blown me away with this interview. You're you've been incredibly open and forthcoming, um, and I think that anyone who listens in is going to absolutely love it. Um, be- before we wrap it up, though, let me pass the baton all the way over to you again. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share? Um, I guess it depends on who your users are, who your listeners are. Um, if it's something you're interested in checking out, check out padlock.com. Uh, wearable device we have for helping people wake up early. Uh, wearable device we have for helping people change their habits. Um, if those are for you, awesome. If not, I understand. Uh, but I recommend you check out the site. And one thing that we've been recently doing that's been very successful is helping entrepreneurs um, uh, achieve the goals that they've set out for their business. Uh, so we created an entrepreneur coaching program called Productive Entrepreneur, 
where we have a Pavlock head coach who helps you set your goals, helps you commit to things that you can actually achieve, and then every day holds you accountable to doing those things, um, both through the device and through digital means. So you get reminder messages, you get vibrations, and you even get electrically zapped if you haven't done your work. But what ends up happening is every single one of our users uh, who's in that program actually does the consistent habits that lead to growing their business. And so if that's something that's interesting to you, if you're an entrepreneur who's looking to grow your business, um, check out padlock.com. At the top, there's a little link that says coaching. Go ahead and click it and schedule a call with one of our, with our Pavlock head coach. Pavlock is P-A-V-L-O-K. So it's six letters, P-A-V-L-O-K.com. I will definitely get that all hooked up on the show notes so people can just click the link um, and uh, make sure they get there. Um, and is there a good place to find you on social? Yeah, my Facebook page is public, um, facebook.com slash M-S-E-T-H-I. It's my personal page. That's my only social, really. Great, great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Manesh. It was beautiful. Amazing speaking to you. Awesome. It was a pleasure. So, Manish, I really love chatting with him. Uh, what a fab example of someone living their life on purpose. Check out the show notes for links to Pavlok and to his Facebook page. And you know, if you're listening to this and thinking, I would love some of that in my life, but you're still trying to figure out all the pieces, see how they fit together for your own mission, your own right work, then you can just head on over to getworkingright.com and pick yourself up a free right work kit. In there, you're going to find an assessment, take that, and you're going to discover the number one thing you need in your work to make it right for you. So head on over there and get working right.